What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain so one of our fan favorite products at on it has always been the whack butter. That's walnut, almond, cashew butter. And it was really good. I like fat butter. We put it in a lot of our shakes. I've been using that for a long time. But there was a way that we could take that to another level. And we've been looking to do that for years and just haven't found the right mix, the right blend, the right supplier to really make that happen. And then finally, we figured it out and came out with our line called Fat Butters. Why fat butters? I don't know, because we put extra fats, all of those good fats that help support a ketogenic diet, that help give you energy, that help you maintain a healthy weight balance. Those are all in these nut butters. So we have the two basic flavors. We have the creamy peanut and the salted almond, which have a bunch of different stuff in there. They got macadamia nuts and chia seeds and all kinds of other omega-3 balancing nuts and seeds so that you're not boosting your omega-6, which is pro-inflammatory, but you're starting to balance that out with a bunch of the healthy fats, also included from coconut, from ghee, from all kinds of different sources. And then we have our sweeter nut butters, which are sweetened using non-sugar sweeteners so that you're getting the maximum benefit plus the maximum taste. And we have one that tastes a lot like Nutella. It's a chocolate hazelnut flavor. And then we have another one that we call Snickerdoodle with a nice cinnamon flavor. All of those with great macronutrient profiles. They're delicious. You guys are going to love these things. Definitely give them a try. Go to onit.com slash fatbutters. That's onit.com slash fatbutters. And of course, if you go to onit.com slash Aubrey first, you're going to save yourself 10% before you go and look at the fat butters. Dr. Chris Ryan is one of my really good friends, an incredible storyteller. You might have heard him on the Joe Rogan Experience, or you might have read his book like I did, Sex at Dawn, and completely turned the paradigm of human sexuality and evolution entirely on its head. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. It was recorded live in front of a crowd in Santa Monica. It was a lot of fun, and be prepared for some docking jokes. All right, beautiful. Well, me and Chris were having a conversation, and we were talking about foreskin reclamation. <laughs> and I thought that would be a good place to start this chat. Tell us all about foreskin reclamation, Chris. Uh, how many people in here are circumcised? Yeah, it's a pretty big crowd. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Some ladies, too. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't, I never, I couldn't figure out how to jerk off um, till I was 15. Which is weird, because now I'm sort of like some sort of a sex expert. 
but I got a slow start. I couldn't figure it out. I could, all these dudes are doing this motion. I'm like, that hurts. Mm. They weren't circumcised. Ooh, advantage. So, yeah, it never occurred to me. Lube never occurred to me until I was 15. <laughs> I was using conditioner, I think. Actually, like I, lube wasn't available like 22 years ago for me. Like there was like maybe some yeah, like, Vaseline, but that was like fucking disgusting. You so know what it was, it was like, for me? I can't believe I'm about to say this in a room <laughs> full of strangers because I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've even said this on my podcast. Uh, I read this article in National Lampoon, and the dude used mayonnaise, Whoa. and I happened to be home alone at the time. I was like mayonnaise. And I went down to the kitchen, and I'll tell you what, egg salad sandwiches, <laughs> still to this day. <laughs> I would, you know, people, yeah. you, people use fucking everything, because I was talking, so I had a homie who is a fighter. This and was a bad idea. <laughs> he spent some time in juvie, and he had a real weird thing about peanut butter, because they would use peanut butter as lube, not just for themselves, but for butt fucking. Chunky or smooth? That's what I asked him. That's the move. Depends on the kind of ride you're looking for, you know? If, you're, if your prison bitch was, like, acting up, then you go with the chunky, you go chunky. I chunky. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing that. That's right. It's a great nickname. Chunky. Why do they call you Chunky? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. But why? Let's move on. But why? But no, but why are we... I think, like, Joe talks about this a bunch. Like, you know, it's like... Peanut circum- butter butt fucking? <laughs> no, but, like, circumcision. Oh, yeah. It's still... Like, it's okay, thing, so I got yeah. circumcised late. I got circumcised when I was, like, four. Because... And then... And the reason why is because I would go pee, and I would just I would just spray pee everywhere. Right. <laughs> there would be, like, a splattering on the walls in the toilet. Finally, my parents were like, fuck this. Right. Like, we're not dealing with this anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so I remember, I actually have like a memory of getting circumcised. I remember going into the hospital. I remember them, and they're like, you know, obviously I'm four, so I'm getting euphemism. You're going to go to sleep, and, you know, they're going to, they explained what it was, and I was like, ah. But I remember like that horif- like horrifying, traumatic moment where just my dick was on fire, and mm. they kept me in the hospital bed, and they were like, we can't let you go until you pee. And I was like, I don't have to pee. And then they just kept feeding me apple juice. And they're like just more, drinking more and more apple juice until finally I could pee out of my burning dick, and like that was my circumcision experiment. But like, was it was it worth it? I don't know, because I, I don't know. I don't remember the other way. Yeah, it's funny. People talk about you know there there are these movements of men who are really angry about it, and they call it you know genital mutilation and all this kind of stuff. And I understand where they're coming from, but. You know, one of the things they say is, like, the, the foreskin that's removed contains a lot of nerve endings, and so it takes away a lot of sensation. I don't know about you, but, like, you know, when I was growing up, uh, lack of sensation wasn't a problem. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> it's a fucking benefit. <laughs> well, it, like, maybe, maybe a little less, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like, let's learn how to limit this, you know? Right. Well, yeah. especially in our time where instead of, like, in our ancient tribal ways... There would be multiple partners pleasing one woman at a time, as right. you so eloquently wrote in your book, Sex at Dawn. But now, when it's just all on one person's shoulders, you know, having all that extra sensation, you know, that's fucking right. really got to be a gotta master. Get ninja about that. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. the other thing. Like, once I did learn how to jerk off, I was like, oh, I'm going to study this. This is something Ooh. I, yeah, this was a martial art. This wasn't just <laughs> tossing a load. No, this is like, 
get close to the edge, back up, get close, back mm-hmm. up. And then I was having sex with a woman like three months after I learned to jerk off. So it was like, wow, <laughs> that would have made the last three years a lot easier. <laughs> but and then it was interesting with her because she came when I went down on her, but she didn't come from intercourse. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really fascinating. So I went out and got a lock. Only box. Chris Ryan gave a woman an or- orgasm by going down her the very first time he had sex. Yeah. <laughs> gangster. He gangster, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I got this lockbox, and I had, like, I bought a f- like French ticklers and Benoit balls and vibrators and dildos, and I had all these things, and we were doing all these experiments. And wait, you're still 15, 16? 15, yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah, because it was like, I want to like understand this. <laughs> <laughs> Like, so like when they're talking about like, sense. like Mozart composing things at seven, <laughs> you know, they're like he just sat down and wrote his first symphony yeah, at eight. That's it. You know, that's like this it. was you with your Benoit balls and ticklers at fifteen. It was, yeah. pre- it was almost predestined. And then I got her friend off over the phone, which was a really proud moment, like just mind to mind. Ooh. And then I did it in Spanish, and that was like, <laughs> fuck, I've mastered the language. <laughs> Because you make one grammatical mistake, it just breaks the mood entirely. You know? <laughs> Conjugate one verb wrong, and she's not going to come. So when we... <laughs> can, can we cut this and start over? <laughs> I actually have interesting when, things when I we, could talk about. When we, when we talk, though, like, there'll, there'll be little things, and we won't share them, but there'll be little things that slip out, and, and, and you'll, little things you'll share... And it really will illuminate me about the importance of using the mind as a sex organ. Mm. And like you are, you got the ticklers and the Benoit balls and all the physical things and all the things that you can do and the stroke patterns and the, right. all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the mind. But well, the you mind. and Duncan are talking about story. I think story is really important, especially for women, much more for women than it is for men. Mm-hmm. So is that something that you consciously you know, try to cultivate in a lot of situations and would recommend that people try to cultivate is like the utilization and the harnessing of the mind. Because I've experienced that in my sex life. When you can create a situation, a scenario, a story, a role play, uh, that, and the mind is fully engaged, I mean, the body just lights up like the fucking, like that dude in the movie Running Man who had all the fucking Christmas trees on him. What was that guy? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody watch the movie Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah, that guy. You're fucking, the body's just, what is it? Dynamite. Dynamite, that's it. That's it. Somebody knew. Um, but like the body like fucking lights up and responds when that brain gets yeah. switched that right way. Yeah, I think the bodies, in sex, bodies are just bridges between minds, really. You know? Mm-hmm. I think it's, and I think a mistake that a lot of men make is that they think about sex in terms of bodies. And uh, I think a lot of women are sort of waiting to meet a guy who doesn't. And then when they do, then, then things can really open up. And the thing about the story is you, you sort of, it's almost like an astrological sign. Like people have different erotic narratives that really work for them. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think if you can sort of key into someone's erotic narrative and create a space where they're free to experience that, um, then I think things can go in really much deeper places. So what do you think are the, all right, if we're going to talk about general kind of patterns 
of erogenous awakening for women and then maybe erogenous awakening for men and talk about what are the stories that are cultivated that actually tend to be things that, because obviously there's going to be unique outliers where it's like, okay, this really interesting specific story is the thing that really just fucking lights the Christmas tree up. But, but like in general, what are the stories that actually engage the mind the most? Um, well, I mean, I, if, obviously, as you just sort of laid out a caveat, everyone, there's spectrums and everyone's different. And I'm speaking from only personal experience and I'm heterosexual, so I can really only uh, talk about um, women and only in a very limited sense. But I think that a lot of, uh, I, I think the narrative often centers around uh, feeling safe enough to experience danger if you know what i mean mm -hmm. right like trusting that this dude would never ever hurt me and then within that sort of shelter being free to play with fears and vulnerabilities and things like that mm -hmm. i don't want to talk anymore about <laughs> well i think and i also think there's a reaction to repression right like one yeah. thing one thing i've yeah. noticed is like all right if you're shamed for an overt sexuality let's if you're a woman and you're shamed for your overt sexuality then being with someone who embraces and celebrates and encourages that overt sexuality gives you that kind of doctor strange playground where you can go into that dimension where everything is safe and everything is cool and you can just let your fucking freak flag fly right. and it be celebrated completely right you know that is a really liberating and exciting experience and that that dude's not going to shame you later right. or or that the whatever's expressed here in this space isn't doesn't carry over into dinner you know like right and he's not going to tell anybody i mean there's a lot of stuff i i often think you know because i've done all this research on sexuality across cultures and uh, it seems that in cultures that don't have hang-ups, that there really isn't kink. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I wonder, like Duncan called me a shame exorcist years <laughs> ago, and that sort of stuck. And uh, I, I do spend a lot of time having conversations like this where it's like, fuck it, I'll talk about when I jerked off and <laughs> mayonnaise. And you know, try to like, who cares, right? You know, uh, but then I also think like, well, if the work I'm doing and Dan Savage is doing and you're doing and lots of people are doing, removing shame, is that actually making sex less interesting for, for people? Like if we succeed in removing shame, then will sex just become sort of bland? Like what's the hottest sex anyone's ever had? I sort of imagine like a priest and a nun sneaking off into the woods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. God is watching, I just gotta <laughs> have it, baby. Like, that sounds pretty hot. Yeah, fucking Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah. It's forbidden. Yeah. Well, you know, the, there's Jack Morin uh, wrote a book called The Erotic Mind. It's sort of a classic in sexuality uh, studies. And he says in that book that um, attraction plus an obstacle equals passion. And if you think, Romeo and Juliet, think of any great love story. Whatever it is, there's that initial attraction, then there's this obstacle. Oh, you know, we're both married, she's married, you live on that coast, I live on this coast, our parents don't want it to happen, you're different races, we're gay, we can't tell anyone. Whatever it is, there's this big obstacle, and that's what builds the passion. And what do we do in our relationships, right? We meet somebody, there's that passion, there's that attraction. We remove the obstacle when possible, move in together, get married, 
And then the passion dissipates, and we're like, what the fuck happened? This used to be so hot. Well, you just broke the fundamental rule of passion. You removed the obstacle. So I think you're probably experiencing some of this with Whitney, where you're, you've taken your relationship into a place where there are all sorts of obstacles yep. now. That and all sorts of passion. Right, exactly. You know, as, a lot of and people the, do and, find that. And that direct correlation between obstacle and passion, you know, like we can chart that. You know, right. Periods of time where there's, everything is nothing's really happening. And we had that in our monogamous portion of our relationship, right? And then that diminishment of passion and then the reignition of passion as we went to open. And, and as you said, we're in just an obstacle playground, battleground, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, absolutely. And then you also, you know, we can also think, going back to your earlier point, like you go to a culture where all the women are topless and like men getting particularly turned on by boobs is probably a lot less prevalent, I would imagine, right? Like, that's well, not funny. the thing. It's, it's the thing funny. that's hidden. Because I live in Spain most of my life, right? And beaches are topless in Spain. And breasts are, I mean, like, there'll be a big billboard with a woman breastfeeding a baby, you know, selling, I don't know what the hell she's selling, but um, breasts are just around. And yet, when you see a woman walking down the street, you still check her out. You know, it's weird. It's like mm -hmm. the, there's still the erotic allure, even when in when they're hidden, it, they're erotic. When they're on the beach, they're not. It's it's hard to. It's a strange thing. It is a strange thing. Maybe I, that's just. I wonder me. what happens. Well, but what about like indigenous cultures? Where because Spain, they're still mostly clothed, occasionally right. naked. It's yeah, still when some, women, yeah, they're not considered just, erogenous in hunter-gatherer societies, for example. Right. Yeah, and then the places where there's people are even more clothed. Then, like, strange things become erogenous. Ankles. Like, ankles will yeah. be, ooh, fucking ankles. Well, you know that bullshit the Victorians put those little skirts around their tables because people would get turned on by the table legs? <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. It was indecent for even your damn table to show its ankles. <laughs> yeah. So that is the interesting question. It's like, all right, we've arrived in this place where there's all these shame and all these taboos. But there's another way to look at it and be like, every compression creates a reaction. Every compression creates a bounce. Mm. So you can actually enjoy even where we're at, even though we can recognize like, yeah, it's fucked up that people get shamed for being bisexual or being kinky or being, you know, that this is taboo or being open, whatever you, whatever you want. But also there's energy that comes from that that can be enjoyed and embraced. Potentially, but I mean, we are two heterosexual white dudes talking about, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Uh, people are being oppressed in ways that aren't fun. So Truly. let's acknowledge that, you know. Truly. Um, but, yeah, there is this weird kind of thing where, like, well, if you pull away all the shame, I wonder what would be left. It's interesting. I think there was an interesting book I read, and it was, like, I don't know, Encyclopedia of Kink or something like that. And I read this book, and they were talking about the different ways that they would explore taboos. And, you know, you mention race and one of the things, one of the chapters, the author is Tristan Tarmino, and she interviews someone who was a black woman, and she, you know, was obviously, you know, had experienced forms of racism, which she detested. But she got herself in a sexual scenario where someone played with race yeah. and play, and it was actually both revolting and highly erogenous at the same at the same time. And it's interesting. Yeah. And I don't I'm not like endorsing this by any means. I have no fucking personal experience. This is from the book. But it was interesting hearing her 
recount this story of how it was appalling yet exciting and it actually yeah. helped her release some of her trauma surrounding I know that it. story. Yeah. Actually, that story, I think this, unless it's another woman, but that story was told on the Risk podcast mm. and they just released a book because I told a story on that It's that's in the book and I was reading it and I came across her story and it's funny because her story begins... She's watching Star Trek as a little girl, the original Star Trek. And there's this scene where Captain Kirk is on this planet and there's this black, this um, woman who's green. And she's like dancing and these are like the sexiest women in the universe. And Captain Kirk is like, you know what, we'll get back to the meeting later. First, I'm going to go fuck this green woman. And she was watching that and she was like, I want to be the green woman. And that was like my first experience. I want to be that green woman. And that's how she begins the story. And it's so crazy because I saw, I remember I was like eight years old when I saw that. And I was like, I want to be Captain Kirk. <laughs> 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 it was a formative moment for both of us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, there's so many things that I think can be, exp- like sex is such an important part of our life, but with sh- the lid of shame on it, like the full exploration and fruition of what it could be and how it could be utilized. Like there's all, there's practitioners here of like the high form of white Tantra, which is sexually involved, but it's mostly about breathing and connection and involves some, and then, you know, the Kundalini practices that you can learn. And then there's the power exchange practices, which are, you know, heavier, but it's like the base of a, of the song. And then there's like the, the treble of the song, you know, Mm. and there's this whole expression that I think we really limit ourselves from experiencing based on what we think about ourselves or what we think society will think about ourselves and what we think we should do, you know, rather than just saying like, all right, well, let's listen to the fucking rap songs, the dubstep, the concertos, the, you know, Native American flute songs. Let's listen to all the songs and like see what kind of music we like, see what our palate, you know, enjoys. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'm done with that. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry by the way if I look disheveled. I've been wearing these clothes for the last 4 days. Um because my house is inaccessible because of the fires. So I'm like living out of my van and uh it's in, you and Duncan talking about some some deep stuff. I was thinking this is a very interesting moment for me to be here with you not knowing if my house is burned down or not. It's kind of cool. And I, I was talking with my buddy Kyle over there last night, and we were, he said, you know, I really hope your house didn't burn down. I'm like, I kind of hope it did, you know? Because I'm, like, more covetous of the story than of my stuff. <laughs> like, I want to be able to say, yeah, my house burned down. You know, back when I was living in L.A. You know? I think yeah. you're someone who's lived a life of practice, and we talked about, again, like, putting yourself in situations where you practice releasing worldly things right i mean like you've yeah. you've been in enough situation where if you had to live in your which is a dope van by the way but and i got had, the van yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you're good so the if you had good. to live in that you would be really actually more comfortable than 99 percent of people who had that situation happen because you've yeah. put yourself in situations traveling doing stuff releasing things being minimalist when you need to being eccentric when you need to but you've practiced that art of releasing your attachment to these physical things so yeah it's funny how you call it practicing the art that's a nice way to put it i'm just fucking lazy (laughs) you know 
lazy and poor. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, I mean, and let's be honest, it's a rental. So, um, you know, it's not like it would be a great personal tragedy. It's, but, um, yeah, I, I like not having stuff. I like, I like the moment of, uh, like letting stuff go more than the moment of acquiring it. I think there's that, you know, for me, the same thing. I like, I like clothes. I like buying clothes and I like having nice clothes, but there's an, or like you said, almost an equal satisfaction when I just go pillage my closet and take everything that I'm maybe only going to wear once or whatever, could wear, whatever, just take it all and then give it all away. And I'm, I have simplified some little thing. Like there's a deep satisfaction in the simplification, but I've noticed with other people I know, like that act is really hard. Like I yeah. could wear that one day in this particular situation, but it, it never happens. That's why robbery is good. <laughs> you know, robbery and fires. Like this fire would essentially be a robbery, right? Mm -hmm. It's not up to me. It's hard to go and choose what to give away, what to keep. You don't have to think through everything and all that. But it's really good sometimes and very cleansing when you're just like, oh shit, it's gone. I, I don't have to choose. It's all gone. I mean, I, I've been robbed. I don't know, four or five times probably. And I think every time it's turned out to be a really good thing. Seriously. Mm. And my whole life was changed because I got robbed. And uh, I was, so I was living in San Francisco. This is uh, late 80s, I guess. And um, oh, where to even start this? My girlfriend was a stripper. I could go into that. <laughs> but anyway, it was, uh, that wasn't working out. So I decided I was going to go. Uh, I got a, a TEFL certificate teaching English as a foreign language. And my plan was, probably nobody in this room is even old enough to remember this, but An Young Sung Shi had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. She was the, um, the uh, protester. Now she's the leader of what was Burma and is now called Myanmar. She had just won the Peace Prize. There were all these um, embargoes against the military dictatorship. Burma had been cut off from the West since World War II. And I'd traveled in Southeast Asia, hadn't gone to Burma, um, but had heard a lot about it. And I thought, okay, this government's going to collapse soon, within the next few years. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Spain and wait. I'm going to go to Andalusia, to Sevilla. I'm going to wait down there, teach some English, learn Spanish. And then as soon as the government collapses in Myanmar, I'm going to go to Budapest, get on the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Beijing, and then go from Beijing into Burma and be one of the first Westerners in there and to teach English, right? And I'll teach English for, you know, a room and some chicken soup. I don't care. I just want to experience this. Mm -hmm. So I went to Spain. I flew into Paris, visited a friend. Then I went to Barcelona. I was going to spend a couple nights in Barcelona, then Madrid, then go to Sevilla and start this whole thing. My first night in Barcelona, some guy tapped me on the shoulder and asked me where something was. It was the only thing I knew. I was in the Ramblas, if you know Barcelona. And while I was pointing him to the statue of Christopher Columbus down there, some other guy stole my bag. And it had my passport and some stuff in it. And so while I was waiting for the new passport, I met some people and they showed me around the city and somebody offered me a job and somebody else offered me a place to stay. And I met some cool women. I really like Barcelona. I thought, well, I'll spend a few. I'll stay here for a couple of months. 25 years later, 
I was still in Barcelona based. I still have a base there. Yeah. So like that, my whole life changed. And also the fucking government in Burma never changed. So I couldn't go there anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, so you never know whether something's positive or negative until years later, even something that seems obviously negative. I think there's always a choice, actually, to make it positive. Like, you have an option. I think the things happen, and those things sometimes are not of your own volition. Like, you didn't sure. intend to be robbed. I didn't intend to crash my car into a fucking guardrail and slice my face open. Like, that was not an intention. But at that moment in the hospital, at that moment where you were in the passport place, you could have put your head down and just motherfuckered your way through and not paid attention and mm -hmm. known, oh, I can't believe my luck. How did this happen? These assholes in this country, I'll never trust another Spanish place again. And you could have gone, and then I could have gone in this, I'll never drive a car again. I can't be, you know, I could have gone in this, how could this possibly happen to me? Or you can say, all right, this happened. Now... How can we make this a blessing? Like, what yeah. positive thing could happen? And open yourself to that even possibility so that maybe you decide that it happened for you instead of happened to you. And that's like a choice I think we have no matter what the fuck happens. Yeah, we don't control the winds, but we can furl and unfurl the sails. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I think, so for you, you have that experience, so I have that experience. And we all need these, like, we don't need them, but when we get these reminders, so you had this robbery thing that now is in your category of memory that you can call back to and so when something like that happens like potentially this house there could be a tickle of oh well this could be an exciting change because honestly you, i was thinking maybe that. i want to either live in my van or move to bali and if my house burns down that'll make it a lot easier right. both, both of those options right. become much easier right there's a roomy poem uh or a cone or whatever it is he says my house burned down now i have a better view of the rising sun i like that one fuck yeah yeah because that's that is even if even if you still have no house and there's nothing and you haven't found this magical next place that you're going to go in an even better house i think we always think like we have to replace that same thing with the better the same but better thing. Like, oh, my house burns down? Well, I'm going to build an even bigger motherfucking house, and that's what's going to redeem this thing. But it could be not. It could be like actually just having a place with a better view or being in a van where you're mobile and get to travel and like opening yourself to the possibility and not the compulsion to reestablish the former form of identity, but being able to be fluid with your identity and say, okay, I'm houseless now, and now let's enjoy that lesson in that experience yeah 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 so we go back to masturbation <laughs> <laughs> well let's we, let the people decide &A. yeah should we have some yeah. questions and answers here let's let's do it um we got a microphone flowing Don't be around shy. anybody questions has anyone here read sex at dawn uh Oh, okay, good. Well, you can ask some questions. That's about on my, my next to-do list. Oh, here we after go. Operas. We have a monopoly on all yeah, questions apparently coming, so. coming from you. <laughs> well, because nobody went in. I was just really curious at the beginning. We started talking about um, circumcision. So I actually yelled out, is it possible to be naturally circumcised? I know it's just kind of a strange question, but I was Naturally? Curious. Yeah, like just kind of born with not too much foreskin, just enough to be pretty much... Uh, yeah, I, I think the the amount of foreskin varies. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. 
You no, asking for a friend? Because all those times. No, I, for myself, because I believe that's my case. <laughs> all those times I tried to dock, sometimes it just doesn't. <laughs> no doesn't room in the out, dock. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Who else? Got some over here. Here's a. Oh, all right. Okay, we got someone over there. there. Where's the mic? Is this woman in the front here? So I was traveling last year, and I came across this magazine that I bought. The cover of it said The Sexual Brain. And there was a bunch of research in there about the difference between what happens to a man's brain versus a woman's brain during orgasm. And the research said that a man's brain totally lights up and is like firing on all whatever cylinders while a woman's goes completely blank. And I don't know if you've come across anything like that in your research, but I found that so interesting in terms of mm. just you know the topics around surrender and those kinds of things. So I just was just wondering if you could comment on that. That's interesting. I, I don't know. I was, I was speaking with a friend last night, a woman, and we were talking about the verbal center. And she was saying that when she's having sex, she can't talk and if the guy talks to her it distracts her because it's like it's like turning the lights on it pulls her out of her experience and for me those two things are very closely intertwined um yeah i won't (laughs) (laughs) but yeah like yeah like so it's we were talking about this brain difference, at least to the in these two individuals. One, I haven't come across research like that, but a woman named Meredith Chivers has done a lot of very interesting research looking at the way men and women and gay men and um, lesbians l- react to different kinds of stimuli. Uh, if I can remember correctly, she had those four groups, and she showed them all the same... Uh, videos of like a man working out like an Aubrey looking dude working out in the gym and a hot woman working out and then a heterosexual couple having sex and then two guys having sex and two women having sex and then the other one was like bonobos having sex right like chimps looking they look like chimps and she was measuring how much these different stimuli turned the human subjects on uh, using a genital blood flow monitor. So it can tell physiologically how much blood is being redirected to your genitals. And then there was also a dial on the table where the people were indicating how turned on they, they were by these different things, right? It was very interesting because the straight men uh, were turned on by the two women and the heterosexuals and, you know, what you would expect, and as were the gay men, as were the lesbians, but the straight women were turned on by everything. It was really interesting. So they were like, whatever. It turned them on. But a lot of those women indicated with the dial that they were only turned on by the things that you would expect culturally. So for a lot of the straight women, there seems to have been like a, maybe a miscommunication within themselves, like maybe they weren't really aware of what was turning them on, or maybe they just didn't want to admit it, you know, uh, with the dial. 
Um, so there, that's open to different interpretations. But whatever, that, whatever caused that disconnect between the dial and the blood flow, um, there's something interesting there. And then she's commented on this recently, I believe, and her, she said, well, you know, let's not conclude that women don't necessarily, straight women don't know what turns them on. It could also be that genital blood flow might not be an accurate indicator always of arousal. So, um, is there is there some you know? I know that you had recently had Wednesday Martin on your podcast. Yeah, we really talked gone, about this actually. Gone deep yeah. into the yeah. psychology of female sexuality, but it feels to me like we're in a time where there's a lot of shame and a lot of like really untrue. That's the name of her book, right? Like untrue ideas about the truth of female heterosexual sexuality. Right. And, and that could be, you know, as you said, it could be a testing issue, but it could be part of what explains this is that I know personally that shame doesn't allow you to acknowledge what exists because you really won't look inside and see. And I think yeah. this culturally shame has been a major factor in female sexuality in this kind of trying to fit that into a box. I mean, do you think that's potentially what's contributing here is that so there's this lid of shame on what how a female should express sexually yeah i think i think that's a big issue uh when i when kisilda my wife and i were writing sex at dawn i remember i uh was looking at this research that showed i think it was something like 40 percent of women rarely or never experience orgasm from intercourse and I said this to my wife, who's a psychiatrist, uh, medical doctor, worked in Africa for years. She grew up in Africa. And I said to her, does that sound right to you, 40%? And she said, well, 40% of white American college students. And I was like, oh, yeah, good point. Because that's who they're studying primarily. These are graduate students studying undergraduates you know, for a course credit, come in and answer these questions or whatever. I said, what do you think it is in Mozambique? She's like, almost all women come from orgasm or from uh, intercourse in Africa. I was like, is that because of African dicks? No, <laughs> it's because of culture. Huh. She, and, and so do you think that's, a, that's the shame lever then, that there's less shame Yeah, I think it's cultural, exactly. Yeah. I think that, you know, the cultural expectation is that... Sex can be for pleasure. We're animals. And I think in the wet, in, in the United States and, and sex-negative cultures, this idea that we're animals is very uh, problematic for people, right? Mm -hmm. That's why they don't want to talk about shitting. They don't want to talk about coming. They don't, like all these animalistic, they want dying, like all these things that animals do. Somehow we're supposed to be exempt from that, mm -hmm. you know? And um, in other cultures that are closer to the ground, it's like... You know, yeah, we shit, we eat, we die, we fuck, we come. It's like it's and, part and of life, and man. And you're surrounded by and, it. And women, like, feed babies yeah. with their breasts. You know, like, what, what's how is that shameful? Like, what kind of sick-ass culture considers that to be shameful and encourages women instead to take this cow's milk that's been boiled at, you know, what who knows what temperature, totally killed, you know, homogenized and pasteurized, and then mix it with this chemical shit that Nestle sells you, what kind of sick culture, you know, guides us in that direction? So, yeah, 
I don't know what the hell I was talking about there. Well, that, but, but that's the that's the interesting time that we live in, and I yeah. think as we we will look back at these times, and we'll look back at some of the things that become obvious, you know, like racism, like these, you know, rights that different groups have, and like gay marriage, and like all of these, and we'll look at wow, look at the education that we had around sexuality. Look at the shame that was present around sexuality. Look at the expectations and and all of this, and we'll be like whoa, those were the dark ages of sexuality in, yeah, in, a, in here in the States. Yeah, and a big part of what we're trying to do in Sex at Dawn also was to show how science gets enlisted in this political uh, attack on human sexuality. And, and you know, sometimes I'll read online, you know, I have like news alerts set up and sometimes I'll see someone say, oh, that book's been totally debunked. You know, it's like, first of all, no. But... Uh, a lot of scientists were pissed off, as they should have been, because we were calling them out. We we're saying, like, okay, you guys do your research on undergraduate American women. They're 18 to 22 years of age. Most of them are upper class. Otherwise, they couldn't afford to go to college. And you're asking them questions like, what is the ideal number of sexual partners to have in a lifetime? And they're saying three to five. And you're saying, women prefer to have three to five sexual partners in a lifetime. And we're going, what? Have you asked a 40-year-old woman? Right? Have you asked a Brazilian woman? I mean, give me a fucking break with this stuff. You yeah. know, it's, it's ridiculous. Bias. Or like one of the biggest studies in the most cited studies is these guys in Florida. They had um, an attractive woman walking up to men on campus and saying, hi, I've seen you around campus and um, I'd love to have sex with you. Are you free now? And almost all the guys said, yeah. And if they weren't, they're like, you know, I'm meeting my mother for lunch. Can I get a rain check? You know, and a guy would walk up to the women on campus and say, hi, I've seen you around on campus. Uh, I'd love to have sex with you. Are you free? And the women all said no. So the conclusion is women don't like sex. <laughs> right? Where's the context? Where's the danger? Where's the shame? Where the, who the fuck is this guy? Where's where's the, you know, frequency of rape that women are taking into consideration and disease and pregnancy? This doesn't demonstrate that women don't like sex. And yet you read mainstream sexual science, that same study Hatfield and somebody is trotted out Thousands of times. It's one of the most cited studies to prove that point that women don't like sex. And I think now, finally, science, just like the same with the psychedelic revolution, right? It was like, this is going to destroy your brain and it's going to eat it up and blah, blah, blah. And then people actually start doing good science and actually taking things into consideration like that. Like the first MDMA studies, they were actually testing a different methamphetamine. Right. They were testing meth. And then they were like, whoops, they came out like eight years later, like, oh, Oh, that, that actually wasn't MDMA. That was, uh, that was meth. And meanwhile, everybody in the world that made every news story, and they're like, holes in the brain. Well, yeah, but the retraction made like the smallest fine print of yeah. that. And so yeah. we have to be wary of that. But over time and with the internet and with people like actually asking these questions, having these discussions, the field of science advances. And then there's more open-mindedness. And as the scientists get open-minded, they test make better tests, and they make better things. It's not that science is inherently the problem. It just needs to be opened to the right way to actually show and demonstrate the truth. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 very complicated though because I I mean I don't want to add fuel to the fake news. Everything is bullshit fire. But the deep, the more deeply I study science, the more uh, I've seen how it is primarily political, secondarily scientific. So if you're looking at pharmaceutical research, for example, all the research showing that this substance has no effect is thrown in the trash. It's never published. Mm-hmm. And one study out of 10 that shows it has some minor effect on whatever blood flow or whatever it is they're trying to do, that's the one that gets presented to the FDA. That's the one that gets the approval. All of these other studies, which are funded by the company trying to get the damn thing, are abandoned. That's not science. All negative results should be presented along with whatever positive results. So, you know, stuff like that, it's, it's very difficult because I do think science is a very important way of looking at the universe, but it's presented as a flawless um, sort of uh, the only viable path to the truth. And I think the general public tends to believe that because, well, the scientific method works and, you know, it's gave us airplanes and, you know, whatever. Uh, heart stents, which after 20 years of use have been found to have absolutely no positive effect. Mm-hmm. You know that? Heart stents. My father had two of them at, you know, God knows what cost and risk. So I'm a science skeptic. I'm very, very wary of, you know, scientific proclamations. And, you know, I've, I was in the world of drug research and psychedelics and all that. I remember that study you're talking about. Fuck, I remember when they said LSD breaks your chromosomes. <laughs> bullshit. Total <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. You know, some guy had put a bunch of uh, DNA in a Petri dish and drip some LS, liquid LSD on it, and 24 hours later, he looked at it, and some of the DNA strands were broken. So he published, in Nature, one of the you know, premier scientific uh, journals of the world, that DNA or LSD breaks chromosomes. Well, 10 years later, somebody dripped distilled water on DNA in a Petri dish and checked 24 hours later, they were broken. Anything, just sitting in a goddamn Petri dish for 24 hours breaks the DNA (laughs) strands. That wasn't good science. That was Uh, bullshit. So, so much of that stuff is just propaganda. Yeah, I think you always have to look at all the sides. And I think as people are, and again, science comes back to reclaim the truth, ultimately. And and But I think part of the problem, as you said, is we've put this up on this pedestal that's almost like it almost becomes religion. You know, and it becomes yeah. the religion for most people, where they'll discard, it, they'll discard everything yeah. that doesn't have that the exact PubMed link that says the exact thing. But there's a paucity of the actual research that exists, yeah. and eventually, inevitably, hopefully, will all exist. But we have to understand that science is constantly advancing. I mean, the person who, the person who first discovered that you know ulcers were caused by H. pylori. Like, he was being just shunned from every scientific conference in the entire world. And he was going crazy. He's like, I'm telling you this happens. Until finally he was like, fuck it. I'm going to take H. pylori and you're going to see the ulcers in my own stomach. And you'll stop giving me shit for this. And he drank it on stage. he drank it. And then fucking his stomach erupted in the ulcers. Like, the, the the pressure to conform to the political, social norms, the things that 
support what we want to know is extremely high. And, and I think that's exactly the point that you're making. And I think when you look at the breadth of what exists, you have to recognize that yeah. bias. So anytime you read anything about sexuality, in yeah. particular, or differences between men and women and all that, there's a lot of political pressure there. No yeah. doubt. Yeah, Darwin has been totally co-opted. This idea of survival of the fittest, Darwin never even said that. He never used that phrase in his life. Um, and the idea, it was very useful to the ruling class because they read Darwin and they're like, see, we're supposed to be rich. People are supposed to be poor. That's the way it works. You know, this is, this is the natural order of things. Yeah. Anyway. A couple more questions. Yeah. Let's go over here. My name's Stuart. Hey, yeah, so I was curious about intuition and um, synchronicity. And, um, you know, you've both of you actually have had, you know, amazing travels and business uh, adventures. And um, the, um, just curious if there's a practice or you notice these things. Or, I mean, you just shared a story of something that happened in your life that, cha that like, changed the direction of your life for the better. And is there something that you notice and cultivate, or is it just, because um, I've noticed in the past where if you don't follow your intuition, then it can kind of start vanishing for you. Um, anyway, if you could comment on that. Yeah, I, I've noticed that when, when I'm traveling, a lot of weird shit happens. And when I'm home, much less. Um, yeah, I mean, I just... There's so many bizarre things that have happened. I met a woman in Alaska. We worked in the same fish cannery in 1983. And then a couple of years later, I was sitting in the East Village in my favorite brunch cafe one Sunday morning. And she walked by my table on the way to the bathroom. And I was like, hey, what's up? And then three years later, I was walking down a back street in Bangkok looking for my friend's guest house. And there she was, just the two of us walking down the street together. Like that, how the hell does that happen? Unfortunately, we didn't get married and have kids, and uh, you know, that would be a beautiful, <laughs> but you know, but all sorts of stuff like that has happened over and over again when I was traveling, but it doesn't seem to happen as much. So, I do think there's an being open to it, and also, you know, I think about that situations like that. If that's if she had been walking down that street five minutes earlier or five minutes later, I would have missed her. Or if she'd been one block that way or one block this way. So if that happens, let's say, 50 times in a lifetime, how many times did you just miss somebody? Mm. It must be tens of thousands, right? I mean, it's a very strange thing to think about mathematically. Like the ones that are bullseyes, how many just barely missed? So I think life must be much more full of these things than we're conscious of. I think one exercise that I like to do for intuition is if I do go to a new place, because I think at home you have so many routines and it's, everything is so known, it's almost harder to have to tap into your intuition. But if I go to a new place and I want to explore, I will try to do it as best I can without thought. And I'll just say, like, I'm feeling this direction. And I'll just start walking that direction. And almost always when I do that, some cool shit. I'll see some cool shit. There'll be something dope that'll happen by me just trusting my intuition. Maybe that's because I'm looking for it more. Maybe it's my own bias and you know wanting to find evidence to justify my intuition. Whatever. But whatever it is, 
it's effective in creating a more positive experience than trying to ask the concierge which way I should go and what, and that's valuable too. But I think there's opportunities for us to practice that intuition where you get to a new place and say, huh, which way should I walk? This way. And let's just go and just keep following that and just do those little things to practice. And I think I, I found that valuable myself. One more question. Yeah. Um, in Sex at Dawn, you say that humans have been monogamous for only 6% of the entire time that human beings have been in existence. So why did it change? Or when did it change and why did it change? Why did society accept monogamy? And if it's considered a fact that we have only been monogamous for 6% of our duration, why does current society look upon anything but monogamy with such disdain or horror, I guess? Yeah, we, our species, anatomically modern human beings, have been on the planet for around 300,000 years at this point. That's the, the latest research. And um, institutionally imposed monogamy didn't come until about 8,000 to 10,000 years ago. What we propose in Sex at Dawn, and, and we're not the first people to say this, is that uh, sexual monogamy came with the agricultural revolution because that's the first time that our species owned anything. Hunter-gatherers, which all humans were until the agricultural revolution, um, they live in an abundance-based society. It's funny, like we would look at them and say they have nothing, but they consider themselves to have everything because everything they need is provided by the environment. So they don't have a lot of possessions because they move a lot. And anytime you're moving, you have to schlep everything along with you. So why would you carry a lot of stuff if you can make a shelter? You don't need to bring your shelter. You can make uh, everything you need. And... The second thing is that everything is shared. And it's not because they're these sort of Rousseauian noble savages. It's because, you know, if, if 30 of us are traveling together, how many cooking pots do we need? Do we, are we all going to carry our own cooking pot? Or are we going to cook together and use five pots and take turns, you know, carrying them? Or Aubrey goes out hunting and he kills something. He's not going to come back and just share it with his woman and his children, which is what the contemporary sort of mainstream science says. In fact, hunter-gatherers share food um, almost religiously. Everything is shared. And again, not because they're better people than us, because that's the best way to ensure that you'll eat tomorrow. Because maybe Aubrey gets a deer today, but tomorrow I might get one and he might not. So this is just sort of an insurance policy. So the idea of owning another person and controlling their sexual life is pretty much inconceivable in societies in which nothing is owned. Uh, even like the, the ownership of children, you know, my baby, my kid, my, that's not really, um, it's understood that this woman is your mother, but children breastfeed with lots of different women um, adults feel comfortable. Uh, if a child starts crying, the, ch the adult closest to the child just picks him or her up. You know, think about it. It's, so all this sort of sense of ownership is either non-existent or very dispersed. And 
you know, sort of parallel to that, because there isn't ownership of property, there's no real need to know whose sons belong to whom, because you don't have oxes and, you know, you don't have all this property to pass down to your progeny. And many hunter-gatherers, I'm actually doing an interview tomorrow with Radiolab about this very question of when did people first understand that sex caused babies? There's no evidence that people really understood this. In some societies uh, still today in the South Pacific, they think that women get pregnant when they step over a smoky fire. Uh, you know, others believe that, in, we talked in Sex at Dawn about partible paternity, which are, is a belief that a fetus is literally made of accumulated semen. So women don't get pregnant until they've accumulated enough semen that it sort of, you know, passes this threshold and starts to become a baby. And that semen can come from lots of different dudes. So a woman who wants to have a baby who's smart and funny and a good hunter and good looking makes sure that she fucks the smart guy and the funny guy and the good looking guy and the good hunter so that the essence of these guys will all be in her baby. And then when she gives birth, those guys will all say, yeah, I'm one of the fathers. Yeah, me too. It's a team endeavor. So, and this, there are dozens of different societies that believe this. These are societies, by the way, that have no contact with one another no common language. So this is a belief system that sprung up independently around the world. Um, so in a place like that, how would you even begin to you know, discern whose babies belong to whom and um, control other people's sexual behavior? So yeah, I think you know, the reason we do is all about property laws and all about scarcity. So you know, they have nothing and believe, and it's, uh, you know, and I cite these different studies that show um, anthropologists who talk about, um, Marshall Salins wrote this book called The Original Affluent Society, talking about hunter-gatherers, how they live in affluence. Because, like, if they have a bunch of food, they'll have a feast. And these missionaries who are with them are like, why don't you save some of this for tomorrow? And they're like, what are you talking about? We'll get some more tomorrow. Like, the world is a walk-in refrigerator, dude. Chill. Enjoy yourself. Uh, and then here we are, congratulating ourselves for all our wealth and richness, and we're running around acting like there's never enough. It's supreme irony of civilization. Beautiful. Thank you, my brother. Yeah. Thank I appreciate you. you, my man. Give it up for Chris Bryan. Everybody will take a few minutes, and then uh, I'll wrap with you guys, too. Thanks for tuning in with Dr. Chris Ryan and myself. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Definitely check out his book, Sex at Dawn, and his new book coming up, Civilized to Death. I've gotten a little preview of what that book is about, and it's going to be incredible. Definitely listen to his podcast as well, Tangentially Speaking. He's great to follow. And also, if you're thinking about being in the Austin area, we're hosting two events on February 12th and 13th. The event on the 13th is already sold out, but the event on February 12th with myself, Dr. Wednesday Martin, and Whitney Miller, it's called True Sex and Wild Love. It's going to be a great time at our favorite place in Austin called Pershing. We're going to have a lot of discussion. Uh, Dr. Wednesday Martin, like Chris Ryan, brings a lot of the research and even the most current research, particularly pertaining to female sexuality. We'll talk about relationships, we'll talk about love, and you'll get to watch Whitney and Wednesday do their magic on stage, and we'll have a really good time. So that's aubreymarcus.com slash Feb12. 
and get your tickets. And I hope to see you guys there.